Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by Ivy Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At Ivy, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined again by one of our R&D chemists, Autumn Phillips, and our two production coordinators, Jody Wall and Nick Plymel. We're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP Operations Guide, written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from the guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 6 on compatibility and precision issues. If you would like to follow along with us, you can view the ICP Operations Guide on our website, www.inorganicventures.com. So let's kick things off. In this chapter, Paul talks a lot about, you know, HF elements. We talked about this in episode one on compatibility issues, but let's dive a little bit deeper into what can happen when you have HF elements present. So Autumn, can you tell us, just give us a reminder of what are the HF elements and maybe talk a little bit about the HF thieves? Yeah, definitely. So the HF elements are titanium, zirconium, hafnium, niobium, tantalum, molybdenum, tungsten, silicon, germanium, tin, and antimony. So some of these can be alternatively stabilized by some other stabilizing agents, but most of the time, if you have any of these elements in your solution, you're probably going to have HF as well or need HF to make sure that those stay in solution. But on the other hand, there are some elements that are, we call them HF thieves. So they'll actually pull the HF away from these elements that need it for stability, causing them to potentially drop out if that problem is not overcome by adding excess HF. So some of the HF thieves are aluminum, phosphorus, arsenic, boron, some other ones in there. So a lot of times, if you have a high concentration of the HF thieves, even if you have a relatively low concentration of your HF element, you're going to need a pretty high level of HF just to make sure that those remain stable in solution. So if you have HF in your solution, you do need to most of the time have an HF resistant system or you're going to have to neutralize the HF before running it through the system. So the HF itself is what attacks the glass components. Fluoride, the fluoride ion, F minus, does not attack glass. So as long as you have all the HF neutralized in your system, you're not going to have any issues with the boron and silicon leaching out of the glass components. So some of these are discussed a little bit more in our previous two episodes on chapters four and five, but I don't think we talked about the neutralization of HF yet. So what we recommend for neutralizing that HF is just bringing the pH up to around neutral with triethanolamine. And so a lot of times it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine to just bring it up to a basic pH without adding a stabilizing agent, but if you do have something that is going to drop out around that pH with triethanolamine, you may need to add something like a complexing agent like EDTA. But most of the time, we found that you can just bring it up with triethanolamine and then run it through your system as long as you're doing the neutralization pretty close to when you're going to be running those samples. Everything pretty much stays stable. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, we, in a previous method, we used to do especially before we got hf resistant you know sample introduction systems 
we would neutralize with the triethanolamine or tea all the time, but that would bring some interesting things that would happen. Jody, I don't, do you remember when we used to neutralize with that and some of the issues that would come up? Oh, yeah. We would even set them up on their own run in case something bad happened. Another tip is we would, instead of using just straight tea, we would use a 50-50 mix of tea and water um, because the tea is very thick. So that gives you more ability to add it more drop-wise to make sure you, you want to kind of add the minimum amount possible to get to that neutral pH. Yeah, the biggest issue is it's going to, if you add, if you have to add a lot of tea to your sample to neutralize, it's going to make your sample very viscous. So you need really need to pay attention, you know, is your uptake time long enough because it's not going to be the same density as your normal sample. And also when we would ran, if we had a bunch of them, we, it's more prone to clog your nebulizer or the torch injector if you're doing a lot of them. But if you've got just a little bit of HF to neutralize using that 50% tea solution does a really great job and if you don't have to add a ton of it it's a really good solution if you don't have an hf resistant spray chamber or and sample intro system in general yeah another thing to keep in mind with those two if you're adding triethanolamine if you have mercury in your samples that can reduce the mercury so if you did add it and you did have mercury in your samples and you're interested in analyzing that you're gonna probably get really high counts for mercury because it's reducing it to the metallic form. So just something to keep in mind. If you do have mercury, it's probably going to be better to use an HF resistant system than adding that T or using maybe an alternative neutralizing agent if you do have mercury in your system. And if you're not going to be neutralizing and you're going to run HF on a system, again, make sure that you're paying attention to your class systems if that's if you're going to run HF on a glass system, really run it as dilute as possible, but be prepared to see higher counts for things like your boron and silicon. It really will eat away at the glass over time, so we really don't recommend that. If you can have an HF-resistant system, like a PTFE system, we really recommend that. But the other thing to keep in mind is if you're running really high concentrations of HF through even an HF-resistant system, you can still degrade like the lining on the inside of those systems over time. So you really want to make sure that you're paying attention to the maintenance of those intrasystem parts. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if you guys are more interested in the neutralization with T, the Unisolve method on the Inorganic Ventures website, Paul has written a couple articles that go into detail about, you know, using this mix of triethanolamine and a few other things to, you know, do sample preparation on some really tough sample types. And that's a pretty popular resource, but I think it's one that's kind of hidden. So definitely seek that out if you're having a, you know, a hard time getting some of these HF elements dissolved into solutions. So definitely check out the Unisolve method. All right, let's talk about you know, what can ca cause issues when you have samples with high total dissolved solids. Jody, I'll kick this one over to you. Sure, you definitely want to make sure you have the correct sample intro system in if you're going to run high dissolved solids. You want to make sure you have the correct nebulizer, the all that kind of stuff. Some systems have like inline dilution gases that can help as well. So you, you want to take it down as much as you can with actual dilution of the sample, but then you can add things in. I think also argon humidifiers help with that as well, which is another option on certain instruments. So just make sure you have you know, the intro set up to get your best result for that. Definitely. 
And I know it's interesting sometimes, especially on ICP mass spec, we have samples that we have to run. You know, the sample is in high total dissolved solids, basically a brine matrix. And there's some special steps that we do for that, right, Nick? Yeah. So one of the first things that we can do is on some of our systems, we have what's known as like an uh, HMI mode for high matrix things. So it can kind of help get rid of some of those background matrix counts. But in the past, we've even had certain systems that we would save just for those brine matrices. So we would make sure that we would run that brine solution over time to let it salt out over top of the cones. We wouldn't introduce any water to that after that had happened. And then we would run our samples to detect for what our actual analytes were on that part or on that test. So that's a thing that you can look into is just making sure that you have kind of like dirty parts that you could put onto that system if you're going to run certain things like that. Yeah, definitely. That salting, salting out the cones technique is, is something, you know, that I learned during my time here. And it's very useful if you don't have the HMI mode, which I think is specific to Agilent instruments or the gas dilution. It's basically the same thing as the gas dilution that Jody mentioned. That was actually one of the things that kind of helped us pinpoint what instrument to buy was we sent samples along to see if they could run them on these gas dilution modes without us having to take the time to salt the cones. And like Nick said, you can't run any water or anything that might, you know, dissolve the salt that you've built up in your system when you're running those sample types or you have to start all over again. So definitely something to look out for if you're running those types of samples. So let's finish off by talking about suspended solids. And this is something that you definitely don't want to have in your samples. If you have suspended solids in your sample and you try to analyze it by ICP, you're going to run into a whole host of problems. And I'll let anyone take off from here. Yeah, I think the first step is just looking at your sample before you even put it on your auto sampler or try to run it to make sure that there is nothing solid in there. You could take just a flashlight and put it up underneath it and just visually inspect it. So if you do see solids, it's really important that you filter it before you run it on your system. So one of the things that I've seen is we've done some digestions on like plant samples. A lot of times, well, definitely, if you don't have HF in your digestion, then you're going to have leftover silicates in there, which should probably be filtered out. Sometimes if you have a large diameter nebulizer, they can handle really small particulates. But best practice would just be to filter those out beforehand to make sure that you're putting at least a visually clear solution through your system and you're not going to clog your nebulizer or even clog your tubing potentially, depending on the size of the particulate. You do want to make sure that any uh, filters that you use don't contain some of the analytes that you're looking at. I know that we've tried to filter out some solutions to run on our ICP systems, and we've actually ended up introducing some of the analytes to it, which was causing some issues. So in those situations, we've looked at sort of just making sure that your, your solution has enough time to settle, uh, and you can decant off the top. Or if you have a centrifuge, you can even spin things down as another way to get rid of those solids. Definitely. Yeah, that was something, you know, a lot of those filters are going to have some sort of sulfonated component. So you will see sulfur if you push through a filter. But some of them are actually pretty clean. And I know, Jody, you have some experience with like inline filters, not on ICP instrumentation, but on ion chromatography instrumentation, right? Sure. Yeah, we actually run inline filters on, I think, all of our IC instruments now here. And they're, you know, they're pluses and minuses. We 
as a standard company, the nice thing is we don't run a lot of unknowns through our instruments. We know what everything is. So our filters don't get all that dirty, but you do have to maintain them. You have to go unscrew them and change them out on a regular basis and sometimes on more than a regular basis if you run something interesting through there. So you just have to be aware that you need to keep those clean too. Yeah. And there are all sorts of cool accessories that you can get for your ICP. I know that they do make inline filters for ICPs as well. They also make, you know, flow monitors so you can monitor that. So if you see like any buildup of pressure that might indicate a clog from suspended solids, it kind of alerts you to that. So there's a lot of cool stuff out there. You know, you can really add a lot of nice features to your instrument that, you know, is just above what comes out of the box. Well, we hope that you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivyignite at inorganicventures.com. If you'd like to learn more, feel free to check out our virtual learning academy, Ivy Ignite. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 7 of the ICP Operations Guide, where our team will discuss linearity and detection limits. We hope that you will join us then and have a fantastic week. Thank you.